Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we are overwhelmed already. Our hearts are overjoyed with what we have sung, the story of the gospel, who you are, your grace that amazes us and has overwhelmed us. And praise be to you that it continually does so, and that we can, as your creatures made in your image, praise you. Jesus, we thank you for your work on the cross that broke down the wall of hostility that that settled God's wrath that allows us to come before the presence of an almighty God and sing and worship and pray. We are currently before the throne of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And God, we have nothing to do but stand in awe and to say thank you. It is by your grace that we're here and it's by Your grace through the work of the Spirit that we can come and read the Scripture and study it together, praying for Your illumination and application on our hearts and lives so that You, in the end, receive the glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You notice in your bulletin that there's no outline. The outline is just two questions. Our outline is just two questions. Question number one, if you want to write this down ahead of time. What does it mean to be meek? Question number one, what does it mean to be meek? And question number two, can anybody guess what question number two is? What does it mean to inherit the earth? Question number two. It's an easy outline. But I think it's helpful because it's always good for me when reading Scripture to come and just ask questions when I'm reading it. What did this mean? Uh, what, does it, what does the word meek mean? What does it mean to inherit the earth? Uh, these are things um, that we should be doing on our daily devotional reading. Just asking questions. Parents, this is what your children are going to do if you have uh, family devotions. If you've already had them, your kids are grown, you probably have many good stories of questions that your children have asked from the Scripture. And so these are things that I look forward to as the questions that I sound really loud. Does anybody else? Maybe there's feedback up here. Okay, we're good. Maybe I have another microphone in my ear. It's getting feedback. But these are questions that we just want to ask the text because we, we're, our desire here is, is not to come away impressed with anything. Our desire is not to hear something we've never heard before. Our desire is to know what does the Scripture say and then how does God by His Spirit desire to change me by, by his word. So that's what we want to come today. So we ask these two questions that I pray are helpful and that draw us to application. And the application that I bring up, obviously, is not all the application that there is from this text. Because tomorrow, when I read it, God, in the instance that I'm in, by his spirit, will have a different application and how this might apply. And so that's the beauty of the scripture that God has given is it's self-revelation of God through Scripture that men moved by the Spirit wrote. And so as we read, we are communing with the Holy God through His words that He wants you to be reading for that day. So just before this service, I was telling Josh, 
whenever you're studying for a week or two and ready to preach a sermon, you feel like this is the most important thing. You know, this is, meekness is by far the most important attribute we could ever study. And for today, it is. Today, this is the most important thing that I think God wants us to hear. And that has nothing to do with me and nothing to do with your ability to listen. It's all by God's grace that we're here and we get to sit here and be moved by the Spirit through His Word. What a miracle it is that we have this written Word. So let's be grateful for it as we look into the Scripture today. When I first started looking at the, this verse, a cartoon came to mind. I don't often want to reference cartoons per se, but the cartoon was one I watched when I was a kid. And it had nothing to do with meekness, but it had everything to do with taking over the world. The cartoon was about two lab mice that, by the names of Pinky and the Brain, who still to this day uh, are probably my heroes uh, for different reasons. But I always wanted to take over the world. And there's a strange sense in which I think I always wanted to be a lab rat that, I don't know, got to run on a wheel and produce electricity and run through some of the tests that Brain made Pinky do. So those mice, all joking aside, Brain's total goal in life was to take over the world. And he often came very close, and usually there was some blunder, probably caused by his tall, skinny friend that made it not happen. Um, Here today, we learn the exact opposite. We learn that those who are meek, who have no aspirations of taking over the world, inherit the earth. And vice versa, those who are desperately trying all their life to take over the earth will end up in eternity in judgment having nothing to their name. The word meek, and our first question of what does it mean to be meek, is kind of a strange word in our vocabulary today, I I think. Many of the newer versions will translate this word um, to, to be humble. Maybe some of yours have gentle, or blessed are those who are gentle. Um, maybe even some have uh, a, even a different word. Uh, For every version, there's probably a different word. But the word meek sometimes has a a wide semantic range, and it can go from meaning timid to someone who is just quiet, maybe relaxed personality. They don't like to stir things up. just like to kind of go with the flow, easy to get along with. But sometimes it can also have a negative side to this term, to where it means maybe someone who's wishy-washy, indecisive or spineless or maybe even henpecked as a henpecked husband who has a nagging wife and has no spine to stand up to her. I actually think all of these definitions obviously fall short of what we look at today because when we read this verse Jesus for some reason is blessing those who exhibit this characteristic of meek. I don't think of a person who is wishy-washy or indecisive as someone who, that's the kind of guy that should be blessed and will inherit the earth. However, our thoughts are not God's thoughts. So here in this text, for us fully to answer the question of what does it mean to be meek, let's go to the passage that Josh read earlier, Psalm 37. We go to Psalm 37 because Jesus is quoting Psalm 37 when he issues this beatitude. 
Psalm 37 is for us a sort of definition of what it means to be meek. We'll mainly be looking at the first 11 verses of Psalm 37, although there will be times where we touch on some things here in the rest of the chapter. But we'll actually be spending a good majority of our time today in this psalm. And the reason is, Matthew 5.5 is one verse quoted from this passage by the greatest expositor who ever lived. And so when he quotes, he knows the context. And it's the context that he has in mind for that verse. And so that's what we want to study is the context in which Jesus is thinking in Psalm 37. Our question again is, what, what, what does it mean to be meek? This chapter of Psalm 37, as we read it, is all about trusting God, not trusting our circumstances or our experience, but trusting God. David, the psalmist, opens up, fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Fret, the word fret is a strange word again, one that we don't often use, but I think should probably come back into our modern day vocabulary. I would like to actually see that word become more of your vocabulary on Facebook and in Twitter. So if we can please implore that, uh, apply that, that's excellent application for us today. Fret. Fret can mean just simply worry. If you're talking about yourself, it can be worry. I, I am fretting over what's going to happen later this evening in a game where they throw around a pigskin. I'm fretting over that. I'm not really, but we're fretting over, we're worrying over something. However, fretting can also mean, and context will be clear, that here it probably means more of the, the idea of agitation or anger. We're fretting over it. We're, it's, it's stirring us up to the point of worry or bother. To where, in this verse, don't be angry because of evildoers. Don't be bothered by or agitated because of evildoers. So when we're looking at what does it mean to be meek, I think the first idea is that will help us is not only, I said it at the very beginning, chapter 37 of Psalms, Psalm 37 is about trusting God. And I think that is, first and foremost, our key for meekness. This is a plug right before I jump into like the four things that help us out with what meekness is. Because I think when someone fully trusts God, they're going to have the mindset of, they're going to look somewhat relaxed. Trouble comes their way. They fully trust God. It's not as though they don't feel the grief of that. It's not as though they don't mourn, but they're not going to get, their ship's not going to get sunk because of something that comes up. There's a steady trust. So I think ultimately this chapter is showing us what it means to be meek, and that is, first and foremost, at the root of meekness is trust, a confident trust in God. And before we move on to uh, the four things that I'd like to look at what, what meekness is from this chapter, Psalm 37, I'd like to give a definition of meekness. 
any book you read is going to have a different definition of meekness. Any sermon you listen to will have a different definition of meekness. It is a hard characteristic to pin down. And much of it is because we don't use it very often. So the word's sort of falling out of our vocabulary. It's hard to define. The definition that I think is most helpful for me reading this chapter and other passages is meekness is a confident trust in God that desires to see others' interests advanced ahead of our own. I'm going to repeat that. Meekness is a confident trust in God that desires to see others' interests advanced ahead of our own. So there's a vertical relationship in this characteristic of meekness. It's a confident trust in God. There's a vertical relationship in our relationship, in our, in our experience with God. There's confident trust. There's also horizontal aspects to this idea of meekness and that it desires to see others' interests advanced ahead of our own. Meekness is an others-oriented attribute or attitude. I think this is seen from, in four ways from Psalm 37. And here's where we, we're, we're going to get going here with four ways we see meekness that can be applied to us that I think are helpful for me in understanding this term and understanding what Jesus is saying when he blesses those who are meek and he promises them that they will inherit the earth. Here's four ways that we see meekness from this definition in Psalm 37. First, meekness does not get agitated. Meekness does not get agitated. We saw that with the word fret. Don't agitate yourself because of evildoers. The word is seen several times in this chapter. Verse 8, fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. And the phrase right before that, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. Don't be agitated with these people who are evil. And what's the reasoning that, that David the psalmist gives? Verse number one. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Verse two. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Don't be agitated. Meekness does not get agitated because it understands under the umbrella of trust that God has an end for the evildoer. The one who, my enemy who's causing me so much grief at work, someone who's trying to undermine my authority or um, backbiting or talking about me or I know that that person has an end and that God is the final judge. Meek people do not get angry with those who hurt them or wrong them because they know that God is in control and that the end of the wicked is coming. Meek people don't get agitated also because they have a biblical understanding of their own self-worth. They don't see themselves as deserving vindication. A meek person isn't walking around and if a friend harms them and they hear about rumors being spoken about them, the meek person knows, I mean, porn spirit. 
I think that's, that's part of the reason why Jesus is giving these in this order. We don't know, but it just seems like they're flowing in such a logical way. Poor in spirit. I, kn- I know my self-worth, and apart from Christ, I'm nothing. Made in the image of God, but frankly, I'm sinning. I'm talking about people. I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing. What do I expect evil people to be doing but doing evil? And so I'm going to get mad and lose my testimony, and lose, lose my anger over someone who's doing exactly what, frankly, they're destined to be doing for the rest of their life. What do we expect from evil people? So meekness does not get agitated. They don't see themselves as deserving vindication. And so they absorb the blows of their enemies. Meekness absorbs the blows of their enemies. John Piper gave an excellent illustration on this passage, and he said, meek people should be like punching bags. And when you hear that, you say, I don't think so. Because <laughs> I know what happens to a punching bag, and I don't like any of it. Get all up tie bow on that thing. I see what happens. Sometimes those bags fall. Sometimes they get the stuffing knocked out of them. And I want no part of it. But when we have a healthy trust in the God of the universe who says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So what if we just, if we don't have something? So what if someone's saying something or something didn't work out or something broke or whatever the case is that cause, that can cause us so much worry in a life of mistrust or not trusting God and his good plan. In talking about being a punching bag, I'm in no way saying we should just stand there and walk into a, a hostile environment and just let people just beat on us and not cry and try and be tough about it. That's not meekness, and that's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when something happens and someone wrongs you, you take it. That sucker punch to the stomach, you just take it. You don't lash back. This is not... We're not talking military. We're not talking pacifism. None of that in this context. We're talking about personal wrongs and injuries and other things that can happen financially, socially. That's what we're talking about, apart from military. We're not going to get into that. But John Piper says we should be like punching bags versus porcelain statues. He said you never see a boxer practicing on a porcelain statue. One hit and it's shattered. Christians who are meek, who have a, a confident trust in God, don't shatter when something happens. Absorb it. Take it. For those of you who are nervous about where this is going because you just say, I, I cannot be a punching bag with no source of uh, relief. There needs to be a relief valve Brothers and sisters, there's scriptures that comfort us and tell us that God will not put you in a situation above what you can handle. And that God will comfort you, that God will protect you and provide for you. And that's what meek people do. When times of agitation come up, 
Meek people run to the one they trust in, and they don't get agitated. And they might be running with the wind knocked out of them, but they run to the one who they know can truly comfort them. Let's go to Numbers 12. Keep your finger in Psalm 37 because we'll, we'll be here for a while. Numbers 12. If you've ever heard a message on meekness, I guarantee you, you came to Numbers 12. I don't like to make blanket statements like that, but I'm pretty confident. This one's usually used a lot. Numbers 12, but for good reason. We'll read verses 1 through 3. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Moses is the leader of the people. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken also through us? And the Lord heard it. Verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. That's just a little aside in the story. Because here you have Moses, his closest confidants, Miriam and Aaron, who are talking about him, wanting, in a sense, to usurp his authority. Maybe we're talking coup. And all it says is, and the Lord heard it. And Moses doesn't know that. This is the narrator. The narrator is omniscient. The narrator says, and the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek. It doesn't say, now the man Moses took his rod and he had a heyday with his brother. And he showed him who's boss. Yeah, the Lord speaks only through me. Take that. No, the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Then what happens? Verse 4. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, stood at the entrance of the tent, and called Aaron and Miriam. And here he goes on, and he says, Yes, Moses is my man. You guys need to stop it. And uh, then they have leprosy, and there's judgment there for uh, Aaron, Aaron and Miriam. I just love it because Moses, not vindicating himself, whether he's scared to death or, but he's meek. He absorbs the blows. Here's his closest companions, people who are laboring with him, who are in leadership with him, and they give him a sucker punch to the stomach, and he takes it. And the Lord heard it. Sometimes I think we're afraid. God, are you here? Do you happen to see what this person is doing? They're ruining my life. My reputation is marred. The Lord hears it. The Lord, the Lord knows what goes on in the news. He knows what happens in, behind closed doors and over the internet and emails. God reads those. He knows those. He knows your thoughts. He knows what you're thinking about people. So those who don't get agitated, meek people, there's comfort. And God provides comfort in the rest of the promise in Matthew 5, 5. You will inherit the earth. Number two, the ways that we see meekness in Psalm 37. That helps us in our definition. Number two, meekness delights in God. So not only does meekness not get agitated, but meekness delights in God. Keep reading in chapter 37. And you come to verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as a light and your justice as the noonday. Here we have a little bit of an uh, inclusio. We love this word. We have a little bit of an inclusio. And it's, it's fascinating because it begins with trust in the Lord and do good, verse 3. And then verse 5, at the end of verse 5, trust in him, trust in the Lord, and he will act. So first, verse 3, trust in the Lord and you do good. Verse 5, the end of it, trust in the Lord and he will do good. He will act. So those are our bookends. The next phrase, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. The next phrase on the other end, commit your ways to the Lord. So in this sense, there's both this idea of uh, faithfulness, committing. And in the middle, what do we find? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Those who are meek find their greatest delight in the Lord. Now, I don't know if this is kind of a chicken and the egg thing. What comes first? Does, does trusting in God come first? Or is there a delight that comes first? Or does it really matter? Because at the end of the day, these are both imperatives. And the beauty is that as we trust in the Lord, as this, this uh, inclusio is showing us, as we trust in the Lord and we're acting, we're doing good and dwelling in the land, and we delight in the Lord, he gives us the desires of our heart. Well, what are the desires of our heart? The desires of our heart is to delight in the Lord because we're trusting in the Lord. And so full circle comes around this idea that looks kind of like circular reasoning, or maybe that's the wrong fallacy. I'm not sure. I look over this way. I think, I think their kids are, are up on that. Yeah, wrong. Kendall's giving me the nod. Okay, scrap that from the, from the recording. It'd be embarrassing. She's 13. I'm just kidding. But when we trust in the Lord and we do good, God commands us to delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And when you're desiring God, when you are a person who is meek and your greatest desire on this earth is God, then him giving you the desires of your heart is what? More of him. And for those who desire God, that's all they want. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? You trust in God and you're saying, God, I'm absorbing these blows that my closest friends and my family and all these people I love are giving me. And God's like, delight in the Lord and I'm going to keep giving you the desires of your heart, which is delighting in the, delighting in the Lord. And then I'm going to keep giving you the desires of your heart, which is delighting in the Lord. And I'm going to keep building your trust and I'm going to do good. And you're like, I think I can make it a little bit longer. Meekness delights in God. Meek people find their greatest joy in God. Meek people are not those who find their greatest joy in being timid or drawing away like a recluse and thinking, I'm meek. This is the fruit of the Spirit. I'm gentle. Quiet people can find great delight in peacefulness or covering wrongs instead of working through wrongs or absorbing wrongs. But meek people find delight in God and His glory. It's like the child who enjoys the box more than he does the Christmas present. And the only time he gets mad that morning is when his delight is taken away or dad puts that box in the recycling bin. His greatest delight is the box. You bought him a nice toy. 
and it came in the Amazon box from the jungle, and all he wants is the box. No, son, you don't understand. There's this toy, and it takes batteries, and it lights up, and, and we can play with it. It has a remote control. I love my son's toys. He's got this car that you can't stop it. It flips up and down, and I play with it more than he does. It's a little remote control car. He's two. Who gives a two-year-old a remote control car? My mom, but you know, she got it for me, I think. And so I'm like, Graham, play with the box. Play with the box. My greatest delight is your toy. But when his greatest delight, I mean, that's all he wants. And he's getting the desires of his heart, of his heart until I throw the box in, in the recycling. And so the beauty is that as God continues to do good, as he commands us to trust, and he will act, trust, and you do good. In the middle of all that, he will give you the desires of your heart. Number three, meekness rolls its ways onto the Lord. It's kind of a strange, strange phrase, isn't it? Meekness rolls its ways onto the Lord. I'll tell you where we're getting that. Verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. If you didn't notice as we're reading, there's tons of imperatives in this chapter. Meekness is not an attribute of something you are, but I think it's something that you do. Verse 5. Commit your ways to the Lord. The word commit is actually, actually means, literally means rolls, which is sort of strange. Roll your ways to the Lord. But when you think about what God is asking us to do, it's similar to a passage in the New Testament in Matthew eleven twenty nine. I'll go there and read it. Well, at this pace, you're going to get there before I will. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus is saying, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. We, as people who desire to have it said of us that we are meek in the Lord, roll our ways onto him. That's the release valve. That's the release valve when we're the punching bag. That's that's the release of, I can't take this anymore. What happens if you are hiking this would never happen except when it does, it becomes a movie. And you fall into something and you can't get the rock off of your arm. And let's just say it's just about the weight where you can push it off. Okay, maybe your foot or your dog or something. So you have some leverage to be able to push it off. You can't pick up the rock, but what can you do? You might be able to leverage and roll it off. So God isn't telling us to take this burden, lift it up, hold it for a while, and then hoist it onto a truck. He's just asking, just roll it. Just roll it onto me. You're so heavy and laden with these burdens. You're, you're laying under the weight of life. God is saying, take it and roll it onto me. My yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. There's still a burden, but it's kind of the trust in the Lord, delight yourself in Him. Boy, that's a beautiful burden compared to this life and what we as parents or young marrieds or singles or children, some of the stuff that we're facing already. Meekness rolls its way onto the Lord. One author, the Christianity Today article, I believe this is the first time I've ever quoted a woman writing on a theological article, and I think it's excellent. She says, It's only as I've turned my heart and from the overwhelming urge to prove that I'm right over to God that I've been able to respond from a place of holy rather than human strength. Let me read it again. It's only as I have turned my hurt and the overwhelming urge to prove I'm right over to God that I've begun to be able to respond from a place of holy rather than human strength. When we're rolling our ways onto the Lord, we're able to respond from holy strength rather than human strength, is what she's saying. She also says, How much energy do I expend trying to secure provisions, control outcomes, and manage people's perceptions of me? Think about that just for a second. How much energy do we expend trying to secure provisions, control outcomes, and manage people's perceptions of me? She goes on, Psalm 37 tells us that the meek give that labor, labor up. They give it up. They trust God's claims that he will provide, protect, and defend. And in so doing, they free up resources for putting their hands to God's plow. I just don't have the time. I'm so burdened with all that life is doing, all that I have to do. Roll it onto me. And I'm not saying you're going to lose time or gain more time in your week, but your hands are going to be freed to hit the plow. Jesus is asking that we give him our burdens. And when we do, he blesses those who are meek with promises of inheriting the earth. The last one that defines and helps us as we look at this chapter, these at least the first 11 verses mainly of Psalm 37, is meekness waits on the Lord. Meekness waits on the Lord. You see this five times. In this chapter, excuse me, this idea of waiting on the Lord. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Verse 7. Be still and wait for Him. When we're waiting on the Lord, there is a trust in the sovereignty of God that we're trusting him to act in his timing and in his ways. The beauty here is that the chapter not only promises God will act, but it even states how he will do that. Because as we're waiting on the Lord, we see promises in Psalm 37 that are the same given 
in Matthew 5, 5. We will inherit the land. In other scriptures, we're told the wicked will be cut down. And God will give us the desires of our heart as we wait on the Lord. As we're not rushing ahead with all of our energies, trying to fix the problem. It's like if you sent an email to someone you weren't supposed to send it to. You ever done that? And then you rush to their office, try and hurriedly hack into their computer if you know how to do such a thing, or catch them to kind of break the fall. If you knew you sent it, if you didn't know you sent it, it's even worse. (laughs) There's some experience. Just check it before you hit reply all. But you're running around and you're rushing. Meekness waits. It absorbs the blows. It trusts in God. Its greatest delight is in Him. And it rolls all of its burdens and cares onto Him. And frees us up for ministry to our families, to our spouse, to the church, to the city, to your work. There's sweet promises in Scripture when we wait on the Lord. Isaiah 40, 31 is very familiar. But they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those who wait on the Lord renew their strength. It's not even if you're waiting on the Lord, you're going to come out of that in the same position you came into the waiting process. It's like you go into the waiting room for the doctor, and at the end, you're not exhausted because you waited an hour, but it's like you're renewed. Hey, I'm rejuvenated. Let's, let's do this, doc. Doctor would be like, what's going on? We've got to change our waiting room. What's going on in there? You're coming out rejuvenated. Those who wait will be strengthened. This is what you know, the NFL or sports teams do. You know, they have, a, for instance, the Super Bowl, uh, Gronk, the tight end for the Patriots. This is an excellent application that we're going to see in a few hours. Tight end for the Patriots. He had a high ankle sprain a couple weeks ago. They rested him for two weeks with the hopes that he's ready to play for this day. He's one of their better offensive players, and they're hoping. I only get this stuff because I listen to it on the radio sometimes. I'm not that smart, and I don't follow sports. I haven't even watched a full football game all season, I'll admit to that. Um, but this guy is injured, and so their methodology is wait. You, know, you do some stretching, maybe you do some light practice on it. You know, you wear a boot and rub it down, do stuff like that, sit in an ice bath. And if you're waiting, it might strengthen to the point to where you can play. So for us, when we're waiting, what are we not doing? We're not running around like crazy trying to get everything done. And there's a confident trust that God is going to do what he says he will do. Psalm 27, 14 also says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. It's beautiful. What reminders for us. Our our society is so fast-paced. We feel like we have to keep up. We feel like to, even just to keep our job, you've got to keep up. You have to be up on everything. Uh, I am, my blog read is hundreds behind, and I'm trying to keep up with what's going on today, and it's impossible. And that's the beauty of passages like this, because 
then he says, commit your ways to the Lord. Just roll it on to me. Stop being so burdened. So number two, that's number one. What, is, what does it mean to be meek? Number two, what does it mean to inherit the earth? What does it mean to inherit the earth? This phrase, I messed up and I goofed when I, I said waiting on the Lord was repeated five times in Psalm 37. It's this phrase, inherit the earth, that is repeated five times in Psalm 37. Why? It's given to us in verse 9, verse 11, verse 22, verse 29, and verse 34. Why? Why so many times do we hear and are reminded of the phrase, you will inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. Those who wait will inherit the earth, will inherit the land, will inherit the land, will inherit the land. Why? In a chapter, we're talking about trusting God and not looking at your circumstances or your enemies, but trust why do, why do we have so many times repeated that you're going to inherit a land? Imagine if you're the crowned prince of England, who for a time is living in a small ranch house in the Midwest. Then imagine that your neighbor comes up to you in his Midwest accent. They don't have, they don't have accents in the Midwest. And he comes up to you and he starts to brag that his house is bigger than yours. You're the crown prince of England. He is a Midwesterner living in a ranch house. Nothing against ranch houses. I grew up in one my whole life. But if my neighbor was the crown prince of England, chances are I wouldn't have known. But if I said to him, hey, look at our new addition. We just got a sunroom put on the back. We might put a hot tub in that in a few years. It's going to add at least $20,000 to the price of the house. I don't see you have a sunroom yet. You don't have the new roof. It just came out. Lowe's is carrying it. I don't see one on your roof. I got this new John Deere tractor. John Deere's huge in the Midwest. Got a new John Deere tractor. He's the crown prince of England. Does he care that I'm standing here mocking him? Or that I'm making fun of the size of his house? Or his Husqvarna tractor? No, he could care less. You don't have to even acknowledge the Midwesterner who's making fun of you. You're the crowned prince of England. And the very fact that your power is not known, that you don't even care to make it known to this person. Because you ultimately care more for the crown than your image to the Midwesterner. That's meekness. You're saying, okay, your house is big. That's a nice addition. You did a great job. I'm not telling you that in a few years, I'm going to be living in Buckingham. It's just this little place. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's across the pond. Buckingham. But that's a nice addition you've put on the back of your house. John Piper gave the illustration as well, like someone who owns a city. Their son's going to inherit the city when they die. You don't talk about how big your house is. Who cares? In a few years, you're going to own the city. It's the same idea. Those of us who are believers, when we read Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek. And we understand that that might mean sucker punch to the stomach. That might mean absorbing hurt and pain. And that might mean we don't lash out. We don't lash out. When we lash out, what kind of a testimony are we given to people if, son, don't start the fight, but you 
you better finish it and don't come home unless that kid's bloodier than you are. What kind of a testimony is that? I'm not telling you how to raise your children. I am saying what a testimony it would be if you got knocked to the ground by another father at a soccer game for some reason and you didn't retaliate. And the next week at soccer practice, you brought him a gift card to Dick's Sporting Goods or you took him out to lunch or you prayed with him or you met him and just said, you know, I just want, I want to talk and get to know you. I want a testimony to your son instead of swinging back. Because we who read Matthew 5 as believers, we see what meekness might entail, but we're comforted by the promise that's coming. That's why five times in Psalm 37, it's repeated, you will inherit the land. Your, your enemies are persecuting you. It's okay because they're like the grass and they're going to be mowed down every Tuesday. Don't worry. You're inheriting the land. What does that do? I can do this. It's like the carrot that hangs out in front of the donkey. I can go a little bit farther. It's dry. I'm parched. I'm trying to roll all my burdens onto God. I'm not doing a great job. And I'm trying to be meek. And I'm trying. And it's, it's difficult. And by God's grace, through the gospel, that's the only way any of this is even possible. God hangs this carrot. You're inheriting the land. You're inheriting the land. You're inheriting the land. I can do it. I can do it. The promise is a source of encouragement meant to help us persevere right now. So what does it mean to inherit the earth? I just told you why the promises are given in Matthew 5, 5 and in Psalm 37, but I never told you what it means to inherit the earth. I will tell you it does not mean that we're literally going to parse up the planet and stake claim to parts of the state, parts of the ocean. Because that is the exact opposite of meekness. I will say, we're going to read three scriptures and we're going to close. Talking to us about how we will reign, those who are blessed, those who are characterized by meekness, who are poor in spirit, who mourn. These promises are for us believers who trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is no other way to the inheritance. We only partake in the inheritance because we have died with Christ. Because we have died to ourselves, we are dead with Christ, and we will be raised with him. To this inheritance. And I'm pretty sure that no inheritance has ever been distributed or promised that is any better. Three scriptures in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21.7 The victor will inherit these things. It's talking about the river of life. And I will be his God and he will be my son. The victor will inherit these things. What a promise. We forever will be his son and he our God. Revelation 22.1 Then he showed me the river of living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the broad street of the city. The tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. 
and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his slaves will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will no longer exist, and people will need not need lamplight or sunlight, because the Lord God will give them light, and they collectively will reign forever and ever. We saw servants, we saw people with names of God on their foreheads, and we see God, and collectively they will reign forever and ever. You will inherit the earth. You will inherit the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. Then he said to me, verse 6, these words are faithful and true. Last scripture, Revelation twenty-two eighteen. I testify to everyone who hears the prophetic words of this book. This is at the very end of Revelation. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophetic book, God will take away his inheritance of the tree of life and the holy city written in this book. So the promises are already ours. It is faithful and true. And so for us believers, it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it to be persecuted for the cause of Christ, to suffer hurt at the hands of our best friend, to not lash out, to wait, to endure, and to find our greatest delight in God himself is worth it because we will inherit the earth. Let's pray. God, what comfort you have given to us. What, what beauty we find in Psalm 37 that sometimes reminds us more of the book of Proverbs and it just oozes with wisdom for us. We can take one or two verses and chew on it for a while and, and gather such wisdom as we endure this life. Some of us aren't, in, aren't having to endure necessarily right now. Things feel pretty good. God, we know that there's going to be times where they're going to have to. And so we pray that this is a sort of probiotics for them, that this is encouragement for when it comes. This is help for when it happens. This is so that we bolster our trust and faith now. So when it happens... We're reaching for that carrot. We're reaching for the comfort that says we will inherit the earth. God, there's some people in here who are going through valleys right now, who have gone through horrible seasons in their life now in the last few months or years. God, we pray for them. We pray that this is a source of great comfort. That God, all of their burdens, all of their sin, or all of their mishaps, or all of their things where they did well, but they were still punished and still hurt, that now they know and are assured of, I can roll those on to God himself. He asks me to. Jesus asks me to do that. 
And so, God, there is great comfort and great joy that for them, they will inherit the earth. Life is difficult right now, but they will inherit the earth. They will reign forever and ever with you. God, there's some people in here, because we don't know everyone's hearts, who don't know you. I guarantee there are people in this room who do not know you as their Savior. God, I pray for those people that this message would be what you use to break into their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Open their once closed eyes of unbelief and give them faith. That you show them who you are. I am God. I am worthy to be trusted. Cast your cares on me. Commit your ways. Roll them on to me. Delight in me. I will give you the desires of your heart. God, we are overwhelmed with comfort and grace through this passage of Matthew 5, which is a quotation of Psalm 37. So God, we come, come away full, grateful for what you have done, grateful that because of your Son and his work on the cross, because of the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection, on our behalf, he did it for sinners, that we can, we can come here and be encouraged and that we're not left to wallow and walk around aimlessly or leave it up to ourselves. But God, you've encouraged us today greatly in the gospel. So we thank you for that. We pray for those who are, who are not yet believers. God, draw them to us. Bring them across our path that we might talk with them. You give them honesty and transparency to say, Mom, Dad, Brother, sister, friend, I don't know Jesus. And I am desperately longing for the blessings that comes to those who are meek, who are poor in spirit. That's me. So God, we pray for them. We pray for your glory that in all this, your name would be made much of through Hillsborough, through this church, through our families, and all throughout the world as your testimony in your church goes throughout all nations, and all people groups. May you receive the glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.